Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I am your host, Dave Roberts. And today, my guest is Michelle Ann Collins, all the way from Portland, Oregon. And I'm going to read you just a short bio bio about Michelle, and then we're going to get right into it. As the founder of Inhabit Joy, Michelle Ann Collins partners with individuals who have suffered grief, injury, or other types of loss as they recover, reclaim their wholeness, and build resilience for life's inevitable challenges. After a series of losses, including the death of her mother, her husband's suicide, and estrangements from primary family members, Michelle combined the tools she has collected as a yoga therapist and wellness coach in studies in positive psychology, neuroscience, meditation and mindfulness, and spirituality to turn post-traumatic stress disorder into post-traumatic growth and resilience. With the addition of certifications in grief education and grief yoga, and several best-selling books in which she shares her story, Michelle helps others transform from barely surviving to joyful thriving. Michelle teaches and coaches in private, corporate, and small group settings, and enjoys sharing her skills and experience through speaking and facilitating workshops and retreats. Deeply connected with the healing powers of nature, Michelle spends her leisure time hiking among the trees or paddling on the rivers near her home in Portland, Oregon. Michelle, welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast. I am very, very happy to have you as a guest today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So one of the things we talked about prior to to recording was talking about, we had the discussion about grief as really a natural part of life, and I think that's where we're going to start, and I think we're going to see where where this all goes from here. Um, But first, if you would, please share with our listeners the events that have influenced your current life path. Thanks. Yeah, I can do that. I had never really, I I had my very first loss when I was six, actually, my grandmother passed away. And I grieved as a regular six-year-old will by asking my mom every day when my grandmother's coming back. And eventually just got busy with being a six, seven, eight, nine-year-old. And and then I went a very long time without losing anyone, you know, any primary person in my life until my mother died. And by then I was 41. And her death and leading up to it, when she had cancer for three and a half years, she was fighting leukemia, uh, really was the entire focus of my world. And I had three little kids at the time and a husband. And it her illness and death made me realize that there were a lot of tools I was missing in order to be a happy, healthy human. And I was on the young side to lose my mom. Most of the people in my world still had living parents. So I didn't have support as much as you would think through my regular social groups. It was a really, really hard time. And of course, my father and everyone around me was grieving her because she was so wonderful. She, she made a huge impact on the world. So then moving forward, uh, after she died, I started studying yoga, yoga therapy, wellness coaching, all of these things to try to get further, deeper into 
knowing how to feel good and live a healthy life. And then I got divorced and then I met my second husband who just two short years later died by suicide. And I thought I knew a lot at that time with my studies in, in neuroscience, wellness coaching, um, and yoga, you know, yoga therapy. By then I was in a yoga, in yoga therapy. I had completed my yoga therapy certification and I was devastated. It devastated my life when he died. And almost every relationship that I had was affected by my marriage to him or his death and or. And that, so I was back, I was behind square one at that point and had to climb out of this devastation, you know, grief, yes, but PTSD came a few months later and I really had to turn to some very deep practices in order to turn my life around and get out of this non-functional grief and trauma that I was living in at that time. And that's when I found training in Ayurveda through the Chopra Center, which is the medical side of yoga ancient medical wisdom, like Chinese medicine, but on the other side of the Tibet, you know, the mountains um, came from South India, Ayurveda originated there. And so all of those studies, and then eventually I got a grief education certification and a grief yoga certification. And that was enough. It was about five years after my husband died. Not that I'll ever stop studying, but it really allowed me to be able to provide support for others who are going through, have gone through what I went through and beyond. So I can sit with people in grief now. I've, I've written books and I do podcasts like this to, to reach out to people. And I, I speak, I, I do workshops, all of these things. I work with clients to help them get through difficult times because I did it and I know it can be done and I have all these tools to share. So that's how I got here. <laughs> and that is quite a path. The thing, you know, that struck me when you were, you were talking about the events that contributed to where you are now are just what the loss of your mom due to cancer and the loss of your husband due to suicide. Those are two very traumatic losses. Each that have, I believe, their own set of issues that are, that are unique to each journey. I know for myself, from my own experience with cancer, there was the grief before the actual loss, the grief of losing, um, you know, you know, watching my loved ones go through the loss of physicality, the loss of their spirit, the loss of their personality, um, because cancer took that from them. And particularly that became more pronounced, you know, for me, more evident when my daughter had transitioned due to cancer. And suicide, which is such a sudden loss, and traumatic loss, which can lend itself, I think, by itself to, PT, to symptoms of PTSD, but also a very, to me, a very stigmatized loss as well too, because of the circumstances of death. So, and I guess we can we can go right into right into that. What were the, some of the challenges that you discovered through your own journey with dealing with a loved one who lost by suicide, and what others 
have experienced due to a loss by suicide. What are some of the challenges that are unique to suicide loss that are that make it much different from other causes of death? That's a great question and in a, a very deep subject. Grief always comes with guilt, almost always. But the guilt is how could I, like with my mom, how could I have made her more comfortable? What more could I have done to research treatment, to provide better care, these things? Um, but there's no guilt with the cancer. There's no guilt with the ultimate cause of death. Although we, we can tell ourselves, oh, I you know, didn't feed my mom that last day, so she died. You know, we, guilt can be a very tricky thing. But with suicide, there's oftentimes no question in your mind that it's your fault when your loved one dies by suicide, especially a spouse, but also any, any relation, any, anyone. You, you feel like you could have done more. And the coulda, shoulda, wouldas are just the strongest demons you'll ever face. Uh, on top of having this great loss, and when you're when it's your spouse or partner, you your marital status changes. You know, one day you're married or partnered to someone, and then the next day you're single, and going through just deep, profound grief, shame, and guilt. And the the shame and guilt are very much um, pronounced when it's suicide, much more than in a non-suicide death. Do you, do you think some of that may be too because of the perceptions that others have about the cause of death? I mean, I've had individuals I've sat with who have experienced the death of a loved one by suicide, and they've said to me that, you know, people have asked them, well, is there anything you could have done to see the signs sooner? Um, and I've had, they actually had somebody ask had somebody asked them, did you actually do something to drive them to it, which is the worst thing you could possibly say to anybody. And then there was a, a man of the, a clergyman, who I, was, I worked with a parent whose daughter had died by suicide, by, and he had said, well, you're never going to see your daughter in the afterlife again because suicide is a sin. So these are some of the things that, I mean, have you seen anything similar to that from the, the clients that you've worked with um, if so, could you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, I have from clients, and I also uh, do volunteer grief group moderation for um, Tender Hearts, which is David Kessler's uh, group, uh, grief.com. And I, I do see that. It's, it's so unfortunate when people are relying on their culture, their, their religious support their religious community and instead they're ostracized because suicide can't be supported and meanwhile they're grieving and they aren't able to grieve get their support for their grief in the place that is usually their source of all support so it is heartbreaking i personally didn't experience that and i'm so grateful for i'm i'm jewish and i am a member of a synagogue and even though my husband, Glenn, wasn't Jewish. They were very welcoming to him. In fact, he and my rabbi got along really well. Um, 
And so my clergy at my synagogue did a modified, you know, I, I didn't grieve a hundred percent in the Jewish tradition because Glenn had Glenn's relatives wanted a viewing and the way that in Jewish tradition, we always bury them, you know, 24 to 48 hours. And then we start this whole very traditional, very supportive uh, method of grieving that's prescribed. So you know what to do. But so this combination made it difficult for me, but my clergy made it as easy for me as they could. They were very, very supportive and they worked around this weird schedule, um, not having a burial. Glenn didn't want a burial. He wanted to be cremated. And I um, did that for him. And so I, I was not unsupported by my faith, but I, I do know that in more traditional um, Jewish practices that suicide is considered a sin. And in some areas of Judaism, there are, uh, they, they won't allow the body to be buried in consecrated ground. And I did not have that experience and I'm very fortunate for that. But those people end up at, you know, coming to grief.com or finding some, hopefully, and if you're not finding, if you're listening to this and you're not finding the support that you need and your uh, church or synagogue or place of, of community is not supporting you, know that there are lots of places to get support. So those those uh, people that come to the tender hearts at grief.com and come to me for grief coaching sometimes do not have support through their religious community and it's heartbreaking it's really heartbreaking it is because i think for me individuals whose loved ones die by suicide can become more isolated than normal just because of again the connotations that are associated with that and i think as coaches as therapists as bereavement support specialists it is so important that we are cognizant of that Focus on the pain of loss rather than the cause of death and not really judge the value of somebody's life by the, the last moments of their life or the last months of their life and look at the totality of their lives. And I think if, if we, you know, we can together as individuals, light workers, grief coaches, um, therapists get that message out, I think we can create a, just a, a, a tremendous community of support for anybody who's gone through very traumatic loss. And I, I think it's improving. For example, the grief community has changed the way we talk about suicide from committed to died by. And that's a really big shift because committed comes with all kinds of stigma, right? You commit a crime, uh, but suicide isn't a crime. I know some, there are definitely some people who view it that way. Uh, and I do understand their point of view. I understand the religious point of view. And I do, I think that if that dissuades people, that would be great. Unfortunately, when someone is suicidal, they get very tunnel, they get tunnel vision and they don't feel there's any other way to relieve their pain. And the way David Kessler describes it is that it's a misfire in the brain. And 
the suicide loss community is trying to really remove the stigma by reminding people that it is a mental illness. It, it, it is a, dis, a malfunctioning brain that can only focus on ending pain and only focus on that method of ending pain for the most part. Yes, I, I, I agree with I think many individuals who, and this is, I think, according to the American, jeez, uh, I want to say Council of Suicidology, but I know I'm wrong with that. But I think you know the, you know the meaning is that most individuals who attempt suicide or die by suicide don't actually want to actually take their own lives. They just want to end whatever physical or emotional pain. They see that as kind of a release, and um, you know, and I think. Again, you know, we just need to, and I think you're right, I think that we have gotten better as far as understanding, but, um, you know, you know, we still got some, we still got some progress to make, but that can be said for all aspects of life, so, that can be said for all aspects of life. Now, we talked earlier, just to shift gears for a second, you know, we talked about death and loss being a natural part of life, so if that's the case, why do many in our society have trouble talking about it? And what can we do as a society to make individuals more, or help individuals become more comfortable talking about a topic that is, frankly, not that you know, easy to I talk about? You know, I have a great example of that, actually. The other day, I was flying out, and uh, in you know how sometimes they let a group into the tunnel, but you can't get into the plane yet because there's a big backup? So we were all sitting in the tunnel, waiting and someone said something about oh i can't believe how long we've been waiting this is killing me and of course i'm a little sensitive to that sort of language so i looked over my shoulder and then we got into this discussion about what is death really like in the few minutes we're waiting to get on the plane and i just dropped this little nugget of you know it's part of life nobody's getting out here out of here alive and a lot of people turned and looked at me when I said that, and, you know, maybe one person in that group of 20 or so that overheard what I was saying, will give it a second thought. Like, oh, yeah, we are all going to die. But I think it's conversations like that, and conversations like the one you and I are having right now, to make the conversation about death more common for me, because I'm a grief worker, I'm talking about it, you know, every day. And also, to be able to have more services and more support for people going through things like the anticipatory grief that you mentioned experiencing that I experienced with my mom, um, you know, from the day of her diagnosis, uh, three and a half years of anticipatory grief until she died. I grieved every single day, even when her condition wasn't necessarily worsening day to day. Um, because we knew when she was diagnosed that this disease would end her life. We just didn't know when. And it was, it's just important to keep the conversation going. And there's more and more grief resources. Like three years ago, there wasn't tenderhearts at grief.com. And now there's, it's serving thousands of people. And every time a grief educator group graduates, there's that many more people out in the world educating people about grief. And the ancient wisdom traditions all had death as part of life. 
I think somehow our culture has decided that death is the enemy, which is so ironic because as far as we know, it happens to all of us and not just the humans, everyone and everything. And part of my spiritual studies and practice have allowed me to make peace with death, to know that that is part of life and to embrace the changes, the the constant change that is the reality of our lives, including the fact that someday, I don't know when, but someday I will be leaving, my spirit will be leaving this body here on earth to go back to the earth. And that that's natural and normal part of life. Yeah, I mean, we could take a look at depth as uh, you know, to paraphrase a quote from the afterlife of Billy Fingers, death being birth in reverse, a transition to a new existence. Uh, that, that our stopover on earth is just one of many stopovers that our soul and our spirit is going to have, um, you know, you know, in, in its infinite lifetime. So it depends on how we look at that. But I, you know, one of the things that I, I tell my students in my death, dying, and bereavement class we're going to talk about a topic. In 15 weeks, you're going to know more about death, dying, and bereavement than a lot of people in society are going to know about. My job is to, to make you more comfortable talking about it, talking about it with individuals that you're going to be, be working with once you graduate. And But it's not to make you uncomfortable in the process. It's to set the stage where we can just have an honest discussion about what is death and how can we use the knowledge of our death to lead a purpose-driven life. Because I think once we learn how to die, right. we learn how to live. You know, and again, I'm take, and again, I'm taking that from numerous sources. The one that comes to mind is Maury Schwartz, who was the subject of, you know, Mitch Albom's this, uh, you know, just outstanding memoir, and I think the best-selling memoir of all time, Tuesdays with Maury. And he mentioned that you, you once you learn, yeah, is once you learn how to tattle die, you learn how to live. Yeah. And there's so much truth in that. And we don't have we don't have to wait till we're at, at our end of life chapter to realize that we can realize that now and learn and live our our greatest life now. Yeah, hundred percent. And it's it's so important, and it's also so easy to ignore. You know, just keeping busy with your your daily life, and we are so busy in our our culture that people don't take time to look at the long. The long term, the big picture, and the the really, really big picture, not the big picture of you know how long is it going to be till I can pay off this loan or earn enough money to go on vacation, but the the big picture of the the next stage, the the after death. Yeah. Yeah, because I think we're so focused on. Achievement. We're so focused on being functional. We're so focused on being happy that we haven't got time to deal with anything that's going to get in the way of that. We don't think about it until the time's upon us. And the time to start thinking right. about it is when and, we can. You know, it's a perfect example with how so. uh, we treat our health in in this country and most of the West. You know, we're huge proportion of people obese, getting cancer. Um, from doing behaviors that we know cause cancer and doing it anyway. So not, not even cherishing in a way that we can the lives that we have. Uh, and then, oh my gosh, I have heart disease. Shocking, you know, but knowing that every time you eat a donut or choose to skip a workout or whatever it is that you're not 
doing everything you can to be healthy. And that's our culture. I'm not blaming any individual on that, you know, your 10 trips to McDonald's a week. I'm, that's just the way that society points us. And then with the high fat, high sugar foods, our bodies get addicted and crave. And it's a, it's a very vicious cycle, but it's, it's just a perfect example though, because instead of looking at the big picture, you're, you're getting yourself fed and you're getting on your, you're on this, you know, hamster wheel of life instead of taking a step off and saying, okay, how do I really want to live? What could I do to feel better in this moment and maybe even live better long-term or live longer long-term? It's, it's about like, and it, that's what I like about what you do holistically with yoga, you know, with meditation, um, because a lot of that can really facilitate positive, positive physical health outcomes and mental health outcomes, which is, and I'm, as I've gotten older, and particularly, you know, in my 20-plus year journey after my daughter's transition, I've embraced a more integrative philosophy where I've integrated holistic practices, um, you know, with, you know, my science-based training, and it just has made a world of difference for me. Um, and, you know, also being mindful of, you know, of, of what I'm eating and, and, and exercising to live and, and eating to live as opposed to the other way around. And, and a lot of that, I think, has been because I had to be more consciously mindful and because I make it, made a commitment to integrate yeah. some more holistic, and, and holistic I think, practices. You know, so. Part of the challenge is people just don't know what to do. You know, they, they were raised by people who were raised by people who just haven't shifted that, that paradigm. And that, when people come to me and ask, what is grief coaching? What do you mean? You know, what do you do? What do we do? And number one, you know, it's the, if, if someone's in acute grief, then of course I'm witnessing and giving them space to just grieve, just fall apart, cry, you know, punch things. Grief yoga is so wonderful to help move uh, emotions through the body. It's, it's such a healthy way to grieve, to to do grief yoga but then after or in between the acute phases because we certainly go in and out I can offer the mindfulness tools I can offer healthy living tools that in the long term and short term increase resilience so that you are feeling better while you're grieving Yeah, that really segued into my next question in terms of how yoga, meditation, positive psychology, and other holistic practices that uh, you work with with clients, how, how it can help clients integrate and move through grief. Yeah, I think I did actually kind of answer that, but I'll, I'll get a little bit more specific because I always like to share tools whenever I can. And my first example is just breathing. If you can learn to calm your breathing, everything feels better. If you can, and, and not just calm your breathing, there's literally thousands of breathing techniques from, you know, the ancient, and, and it used to be called science 
Ayurveda was the science, it translates to the science of life. Before there was medical science, which is only a few hundred years old, uh, you know, Ayurveda has been around 5,000 years. So learning to breathe in a way that supports whatever it is you're suffering from, recovering from that. So if you're feeling anxious, a breath to calm you down. If you're feeling depressed, you know, if you're constipated emotionally or physically, there is breath work that can help. And that's just the very beginning. And then there's uh, getting your digestion going so that the food you're eating is actually nourishing your body, that you're digesting it properly. And that helps you have energy and energy flow is the most important thing. I mean, of course, breathing is more important, but if your, your energy is flowing, then you can function. You can make clear headed decisions on, okay, is it really a good idea for me to eat this donut? You know, maybe an apple would suit me, you know, suit my health a little bit better. And that's where the mindfulness comes in, the, the self-control, the awareness, self-awareness. So all of these things, even in grief, uh, an example I gave while I was giving a keynote just last week was you're on the phone with your sister-in-law. And when you lose your spouse, your in-law uh, relations get very challenged. It, it's very, very confusing because legally technically they're no longer your in-laws but these people may be the very fabric of of your family so uh the culture the the example i used was you're on the phone with your sister-in-law and she's belittling your grief which i've heard a number of times uh over the years working with people your sister-in-laws i lost my brother it's nothing like you only knew him for 10 years i knew him my whole life you know this kind of thing the one-upmanship which happens a lot when people are feeling terrible they're they act terrible right hurt people hurt people so what to do with this when your sister-in-law is not going to be supportive to you right now so there's a lot of options if you have awareness and if you don't maybe you threw your phone and broke it you know and then you're you're sad because you've added more suffering to your life but maybe you took a breath and you you did i have a method that i teach for this uh you took a breath and you waited a minute and you said you know we're both really upset so let let's go find support elsewhere maybe then you didn't do anything toxic for your relationship and you go find support somewhere that you need it or go for a walk or do what you need to do to support your health and well-being in this moment without severing that relationship by doing something you'll regret later. So that's the kind of thing I teach when I'm working with people is those types of tools and it's all based in, in mindfulness, yoga, health and well-being. And all of, all of that has been, I know, scientifically proven to, to help individuals with grief, with you know, individuals with ADHD. So it's all proven techniques. The breath work, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Is there any cautions that, you, that we should understand when we're doing breath work? What happens if we like, breathe too quickly? Is that, can that be dangerous or what, is yes. there, there a science to that? That we need That's to, a great our question. Listeners need yeah. to understand. Some, some breath work, especially like the kind they teach in Kundalini yoga, uh, can be very activating. It can increase heart rate and blood pressure. And when you get into that 
uh, breathing, it can also be incredibly energizing and clarify. Your mind can be very, very clear and you can feel just on top of the world. But if you have, you know, high blood pressure, heart disease, any of those things, you, you don't want to do those types of breath work. So my, that's where my yoga therapy comes in. I'm able to assess someone's physical situation and match their situation to a type of breathing that will most benefit their health. And that's all in the spirit of, of meeting the individual where they're at, and that is just great ethical practice to do that, to, to, to just meet the needs of the individual and give them breathing techniques that's going to suit their body composition, their physical history, their personal preference, and I think it's great that you do that. And that's, Yeah, and how, how they want to feel. How do you want to feel, you know? Well, and, and you know, individuals who are grieving, from my experience, are mm-hmm. disempowered to begin with. And um, to, 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 to meet them where they're at and say, this is what's going to work for you, that by itself to me would be empowering. To say that somebody took the time to actually assess my needs and say to me, say to me this, is, this is what I think is going to work based on what you've told me. Not what anybody else is thinking I should do or how I should or what program I should go into, it's based on what you see me manifesting. And I think that that in and of itself, it's the little things that I think can make a great deal of difference. It really can. It really can. And even in my books that came out in January uh, of 2023 about suicide loss of a spouse or partner and then supporting a spouse or partner of suicide loss, um, in those two books, I talk exactly about that and I offer very specific breathing techniques. That's part of the book. And so it's kind of surprising to people that they're reading a book about grief and in there are mindfulness techniques and breathing techniques. But I think if you have these tools, it's just the best, the best way to to learn to recover. Well, and you know, I think as a former therapist, one of the things I learned very quickly is just because somebody wants to change doesn't mean that they have the tools to change, doesn't mean that they know how to change. So it's up to us as therapists, as grief coaches, as brief support specialists to provide tools or provide resources where individuals can access tools to work through their to work through their grief or any other life challenge they happen to be dealing with. Right. Very much so. Well, and when you are in acute anything, grief, uh, pain, whatever life challenge you're going through, oftentimes you have the tools. And this certainly happened with me after Glenn died. I had the tools, but I wasn't able to access them. You know, I went through PTSD. I went through a major depression and I had the breathing techniques. I knew the yoga but without help, without someone being there, and this again goes back to when I was describing what an acute situation needs is just the witnessing. I just needed someone to make space for me to cry and agree with me that, yeah, this really, really sucks. It sucked. And and that's, that's where you start. And so it, it took me finding a fabulous trauma therapist to get me back into my body. And then we, I know we don't have time to talk about somatic therapy and all that, but I went through that um, 
to recover from PTSD. And I had the tools, but I had to relearn them from the, from the PTSD embody, you know, body from, from within that traumatized space. I could not reach the ones that I learned in yoga therapy at that time. Hey, somatic therapy, that could be a, be a nice topic for a return engagement. Absolutely. I love talking about that. And I do talk about that in my books as well. And, and I, I, you know, I'm not a licensed therapist. I'm a grief coach. So I, and I make that very clear to my clients that if, you know, if I feel like they need, if they feel, if, if there's any feeling that they need something more than what I am certified and experienced enough to offer them, I make it very clear. Same with yoga therapy, but I love working in tandem with therapists. That's the, that's the best case scenario. When someone has a, a therapist who's trained in grief and trauma, and then they also work with me. That is the ideal match made in heaven. When you have traditional <laughs> therapy with, and I, I don't want to call it non-traditional, but with more holistic approaches than traditional therapy right. can provide. I think that combination is great. Well, I could go on for another hour. It was just about, <laughs> but... I do want to ask you, based on your, your own life path, your experiences, what are one or two takeaways that you can, you can leave with our listeners that would help them you know, work through their own life challenges? What can you offer from your own experiences that would be a benefit to them? I think I'm going to give, the, in my opinion, the most important one. There, there's several up there in like the top five, but the most important thing that I want to recommend to your listeners is to be kind to yourself. We, we are so used to being hard on ourselves the way that other people are hard on us uh, or maybe have been through your life. The coulda, shoulda, wouldas, the shame spiral, the guilt. Guilt and shame do absolutely nothing for your health and well-being. Zero. In fact, quite the opposite. So working on releasing yourself from any self-harassment, self-harm that you're doing. And I do consider guilt and shame forms of self-harm. So even becoming aware when you're shooting on yourself uh, and, and trying to learn to release that and greeting yourself with compassion. One of the things I use with my clients all the time is I say, would your best friend, your, your person who supports you the most, talk to you that way? Then why are you? you know, what, why don't you try to be your own best friend? And especially, again, if you've lost a spouse, oftentimes that person was your best friend. And so you're grieving in a, in a very more isolated than, than normal. Um, not that there's a normal grief, but yeah. So just to be kind to yourself. You know, you're going through enough. If you need a day to lay in bed and cry, then do it and let it go. And don't be hard on yourself. So that's my number one is to try to don't make it worse. You already went through this terrible loss. Just be nice. 
Yeah, I think self-kindness is something that we don't do enough of. And we need to be we need to, to be nice to ourselves, we need to be good to ourselves. Because this is a marathon, it isn't a sprint. And there's gonna be plenty of days where just the weight of grief is is going to, to be to be enough of a burden without putting more burden on ourselves for things that we should have seen or could have done and like you said, quit should we shouldn't should on ourselves, you know. Exactly. So. Yeah, I had a, I have a story. I think it's in these most recent books. I, I'm not 100% sure because I've written it so many times. But I really had an aha moment. I was at a retreat and the adjudicator was a Course in Miracles teacher, which is another wonderful text that I love. Um, and everyone was asking questions. It was the open question part at the very end of the the retreat and the answer was love yourself and then the next person asked a question and the answer was love yourself and after hearing that a few times and realizing okay I I had a moment of trying to love myself and it was so hard but but when I was able to just say okay Michelle maybe you're not a terrible human being maybe you're okay It, it was life-changing, completely life-changing. I was able to grow in from that moment to grow into the person that I am now. Yeah, it's like the cognitive behavioral therapist was call a cognitive, re, cognitive appraisal where we take a look and say, well, you know, literally, I am a good person. Regardless of what anybody else may think, I know that I am a good person. And you always have a chance to make a different choice. If what you're doing if you perceive what you're doing as bad, then you can make a different choice. That's right. We were born with free will, and we can and to, to to not make a choice is to make a choice. But we we have the free will to to, to determine our life path. No, nope, you know, and we can walk our life path as we so choose. And we can choose to love ourselves. And the nicer you are to yourself, the easier it is to be nice to others. Oh, for sure, because I think the reflection of our inner world is how we see our outer world. Yes. If we love ourselves, that love is going to emanate naturally to others. Um, but anyway, just to wrap up, and I could, like I said, I go on for another hour um, at this point, but I hopefully you'll come, come back for a return engagement down the road. Where we can... Anytime. I have loved our conversation. It's been It's been really a blessing to me. Well, it's been a blessing to me, too, to have you. And with that, we give you time now to just let our listeners know, one, how they can contact you about your services, where they can find your books, your website, anything that you want to you say about the work that you're doing, events that you have coming up. The virtual platform is yours. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, the best way to get in touch with me or learn anything about uh, me, my, my offerings is to just go to my website, inhabitjoy.com. And I'm also on all the socials. Well, I'm not on TikTok, so I shouldn't say all the socials, but uh, LinkedIn, um, Instagram, and Facebook. I have a little YouTube channel that I'm starting to grow a little bit. And as far as my books, um, you can find them on my website, but they're also in all the bookstores. 
if you go to Amazon, you can go to Michelle Ann Collins author and you can find all five of the books on my author page. So pretty easy. And I do offer a free consultation. So if, if you want to talk to me about whether I have a skill or a resource that will help you, you can sign up for those right on my website, free, free consultation. And you can't beat that, you know, this, this way it gives the individual the opportunity to see whether they're, you're a good match for them and vice versa. I think that's great. Well, the, the ultimate goal is to help people. So I, I often do these consultations and send them, send someone somewhere that I think is a better fit or give them a book to read or something like that. Um, yeah, whatever I can do to help out. And there's free meditations on my website too. You can sign up and listen to my meditation library if you like my voice. <laughs> well, I, I I know I've enjoyed having your voice on the podcast today, Michelle, and I uh, hope we can do this again soon. And again, thank you so much for, for being a part of the Teaching Journeys podcast. And um, it's been a great experience, and I wish you well, and I wish you peace. Thank you. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. And thank likewise. And with that, everybody, that is another wrap on another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Dave Roberts. Take care, and I wish you all peace.